Well, hello, hello. Welcome to Phenomenal Disabilities with Tree Low. And today's guest is Mean Dave. Mean Dave, say hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, before we get started, I'm going to describe myself. I'm an African-American woman with a colorful hair wrap, wearing a sleeveless uh, black top and a bunch of jewelry with red lipstick. And Mean Dave, can you kind of describe to yourself what you look like? I've done this many a time for our, uh, our visually impaired friends. I look like a pile of Mexican laundry, uh, <laughs> a, a pile of laundry that listens to heavy metal. Uh, uh, pretty much, that's. Uh, I mean, I got long, dark hair. Uh, I have a beard that's dark too, with a little gray in it, and I have uh, light brown skin, like you know, just some nice brown sugar toned skin. And uh, yeah. Yeah, nice skin, nice skin. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you kind of tell the world uh, what what career uh, field that you're in? Well, uh, tell the world. Yeah, yeah. Like, what, what do you do for a living? All the languages. Um, I, I, uh, what I do for a living, I, uh, I avoid getting a day job. That's what I do for a living. No, um. <laughs> But no, I, I'm a, I, I'm proud to say that, that for the most part, even though I'm I'm not a, a mainstream weekend headliner in comedy clubs, uh, I make my living as a stand-up comedian, um, as a stand-up comedian and and a producer of comedy shows, All um, right. but primarily from primarily uh, uh, my own stand-up comedy. So could you kind of tell us about some of the the, the shows that you produce? Yeah, um, I mean, it's something I just can't, I, I'm not, it's funny, uh, in comedy, uh, one of the things that a lot, everybody kind of does uh, to kind of get introduced into the comedy community, you either start your own open mic or start a show or start a few shows. Um, I'm by no means a good comedy producer. Um, I kind of knew that because uh, I used to run music shows when I had my bands. I used to, you know, I would book my own shows. Uh, we would get on shows other people produced and we would produce our own. But um, so I'm kind of, I was kind of familiar with how to go about it. But um, in producing a comedy show, it's tricky because there's a lot of salesmanship that's kind of involved with promotion and all that. I'm terrible at that. I am a horrible salesman because I have trouble trying to convince somebody of something I may not fully believe myself. Uh, you know, if I'm selling something, I'm not doing it intentionally. It's because, oh no, this is a great product and yada yada, I use it and whatever. But if I my job is to sell something that I don't use or I'm not really that invested in, I you know, I have a hard time. Now, comedy is one of this weird gray area because I love doing stand-up and I would want people to go to shows, but I also know like, well, I am me and I'm, I am I have, you know, I don't have the most self-esteem in it or anything. I'm like, well, come to the show and figure out for yourself. Right. Um, so, so the comedy shows I tend to run are shows that A, I inherited from people who wanted to, who were running a show and weren't doing it well or something and they handed it off to me. Um, or it's from businesses or uh, venues that wanted a comedy show, knew that I could, that I've had a record of running some, and they they hit me up to do it. And the shows that I run primarily are free comedy shows where we just ask for tips from the audience, um, because I feel like that's I have a hard time when you deal with ticket sales. Then you got to set up a whole other 
thing that I is just a big headache for me. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's just anything that that gets involved in the weeds of organization. I'm like yeah, I'm a very yeah. low maintenance guy, so I I run them mostly in these uh, in bars or restaurants, and um, and they're free. And uh, I have my my shows for like when you're a newer comic or if you're brand new, and then I have my shows for more experienced comics. Uh, and again, these are shows I inherited. Um, I've I've had this happen to me since like probably 2012 or 13, where either I've only one venue I actually saw saw that there was nobody running a comedy show there and hit them up and got them to run a, uh, let me run a comedy show and it went great um, until it burned down. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, it was a pizza place, so it was great. But every show that I've gotten has been somebody like, hey Dave, um, I'm gonna probably not be running this comedy show. Would you be willing to run it uh, from now on going forward? And then I've taken it and um, I'm very fortunate that none of the shows that I've ran and I've, I've have been like, the business never said, oh, we're going to stop doing the comedy show. It was really either uh, me deciding that this place isn't suitable or we ran its course and it's not it's not as good as it once was and I've ended it or the place uh, like went out of business, which has had a couple of times. But um, but the shows I run now, they're all again, they're free shows. We, we have regular audiences for the most part. Um, and again, all tiers of, of being of, of experience. And the coolest thing about it is that it, it practices part of my principle for my 12 step recovery program. When I, a part of the thing that's weird about stand up is that it's a very self involved business. Uh, you can get very caught up with your own self centeredness. Being, I mean, take a good look at my background. <laughs> um, it, it, as far as like, it's a solo venture in doing your, in, in embarking on a comedy career, but um, but being an addict in recovery, an alcoholic in recovery, um, I've I've come to work a twelve step program that applies these principles of of selfless service and all that in my day to day life. And one of the things that I've always found joy in my comedy uh in, in my comedy you know experience is being able to uh provide places where new comics can get the experience they need to continue and i i started at the age of 33 which is pretty late for someone to start in stand-up and you don't you know and i didn't hit the ground really that funny in the stand-up world I was playing music in bands for years and people always found me to be a funny guy, but I was like, I'm not, you know, anybody who suggested stand-up, I'm like, I'm a fan of stand-up. That's a whole other instrument. I'm not, you know, I'm a musician who just happens to be funny. I don't, you know, whatever. And I'm not, I don't have the the arrogance to say like, oh yes, I, I need to take this, hu my humor and go do this completely different, you know, uh, uh, form of entertainment. Um, I had respect for it. I grew up watching it. I had favorite comedians still, you know, all throughout my life and they inspired even my music. And, um, but when I, I got into stand-up primarily to help promote a band that had a humorous thread, uh, it was, it had a stand-up comedy thread in the, the context of the band. And that didn't work out too well. I tried doing stand-up and I realized, oh, when I, without my band, I don't have my, my, 
my uh, I'm like a prop comic without his props. Right. And it's a much different. Uh, I have to like come up with this whole identity from scratch. Mm -hmm. And that began the long process of, of doing stand up um, and not and feeling like as much as you start doing stand up and you feel like you're, you know, like, oh, these are environments that are free to like try things and whatever. They're not. It's a very judgmental atmosphere. It's like going back to junior high as an adult. And as soon as you start, you're judged right away. And you know, the cool kid clicks and the and who's funny, who's not. And if you're not funny right away, you get written off as not funny forever. Ooh. And um, and I'm somebody who it took time to develop this new act, this act of mine, uh, because I was I was also, and again, my I was still an active addict and alcoholic at the time. Um, so that didn't help some some aspects of, of my progress, but Little by little, I chiseled away and found found that you know, oh, this is who I am as a stand-up comedian, and I'm not bad. You know, I'm not. I'm definitely not the worst. I may not be the best, but I don't have. I'm not. I know I'm not the worst. I've seen the worst, some of the worst, and uh, and so and so in that regard, once I got started doing this more, I realized that, uh, and I got into recovery that, that um, I, one of my favorite comedians is Rodney Dangerfield. I yeah. love, love oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And when he became successful late in his life, one of the things that he shepherded uh, the comedy community with were his HBO specials where he would introduce all of these uh, stand-up comedians that he loved, but he found hadn't quite, like some of them might have been on late night or something like that, but he, he, he really loved uh, helping young new talent in stand-up uh, find their audience uh, because he knew how difficult that was. He spent years before he became successful trying to break into the to to be in a, a, a working successful stand-up comedian, and none of it worked. None of it like he he found so many slammed doors in his face, and it really frustrated him. That's why his character, uh, when it worked later in his life, uh, with me nothing ever goes right. That was the line he used to start his act off with before right. he found the, the classic tag, no respect. And that fit because that's a lifetime that he experienced that and it totally clicked with the audiences when it when it hit. And I, so when I looked at kind of, I just kind of fell into it. But when I started running these rooms that I inherited, I realized that I'm like, oh, I'm kind of, I, and one of my biggest inspirations locally is uh, a comedian, the godfather of, of stand-up comedy in the Bay Area, Tony Sparks. Uh, he's a big influence on me and Nina G, my one of yeah. my best friends, yeah. and a lot of comics in the Bay Area. And he was a comic that he worked for a long time, uh, you know, being you know pro, semi-pro throughout the years. But he ran the Brainwash Cafe, which is where I did my first set, where a lot of comics did their first set. And it was in San Francisco. It was this laundromat with an entertainment venue. And the thing that he kind of, he just kind of, he didn't like set out to do this. A lot of comedians, when like things kind of taper off, they start like comedy schools or doing something and try and make some income off of sharing their experience and stuff. And Tony, like, I mean, he would he would meet with comics and, and he would charge very little money 
to to work with you in developing your act he never did that with me i never like you know wanted to sit i didn't believe in like paying for paying literally paying for my dues i'm like i can pay my dues and learn on stage and whatnot and i didn't get a good impression that tony thought i was uh like that tony liked me when i first uh when we first met and we, we laugh about it today because we you know we're both we, you know i love that dude to death and, and he says nothing but the best things about me and um but what I saw him doing was providing this this place for people to get their start and to develop, right. and that and Brainwash was one of the many places where I would come back and measure myself for my previous efforts, and um, and then that's kind of what I ended up seeing myself doing, like not just in trying, I I definitely am trying to improve my station in, in comedy and all that. But I think it's important for me to also have balance in my my ego, my my presence in the comedy community, and do what really makes my life feel fulfilled, so that I'm not constantly running around like an empty tank of gas in comedy the way a lot of people do, and then they they need to fill that void with drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it is, yeah. and that's a lot of the addict behavior. And I realize what helps balance me in the comedy community, and also get to meet new comics get to you know deal with the personalities because not you know even though you help people doesn't mean they're always going to be cool right back and i need to work my, on my ego to like be able to be cool to people and not have to judge them if they change and and, and it's really accepting people as they are and that's yeah a big part of my yeah that's, that's, yeah that's one thing you gotta just continue keep you know everyone's gonna what be the different yeah what the disability community helped when I when I worked with Nina and we started doing the the these our Communities with Disabilities Act and learning that you know I'm I'm covered under the ADA with uh, being with as a mental illness with this disease I got to then get into that intersectionality of these communities and learning again how to to apply these principles in my day-to-day -day life because in the disability community especially with apparent disabilities you have to accept people as they are and you have to be willing to be be unconditionally helpful in maintaining these accommodations that 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 their people are entitled to with no attitude like how what are you going to have an attitude when someone needs a ramp when someone needs you know any of the any of the many you know descriptions all of these things and then to and to really get into the empath empathic aspect of that of like yeah like this is you know we're, we've conditioned our world to be completely skewed to the abled we need to take that attitude and, and be more encompassing to to everyone and so that's what i really feel like the the when i the way i run my shows it's these opportunities for all kinds of comics but to, and I seek out the ones that are like really more fun to work with, but I try not to be judgmental about it. Like, you know, I still try to open it up to people I may not particularly care for or may not be like into their comedy per se, but I know them, I've seen them around and I'm like, ah, you know, let's let's have them on. And I've, I've more often than not, I've had much very positive responses and experiences. So it's good for them and it's good for me. So, so I mean, that was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just curious. I mean, like, um, you know, I, I know you and I have dealt with the, our own addictions and, and, you know, and whatnot. I was just curious, like, which you working at a bar in the stand up club, you know, comedy club, I know there's a lot, a, lot, a lot of alcohol and stuff, and then you're just now becoming sober. How did you navigate with that? Oddly enough, you know, it's funny, um, I get that question a lot, and um, 
my my experience growing up uh my dad was you know an alcoholic um he didn't get into recovery so much as he he uh physically was unable to ingest alcohol um because it would kill him and was told so by a doctor and thank god for my dad's narcissism he loves himself and his life too much to to the, then he's like oh it's gonna kill me well i'm not gonna do that anymore and uh, <laughs> so it's really it's really strange my dad's a, a funny case but um and he raised me in a lot of bars i, I mean i joke about it and he doesn't like to hear this but um but he he took me to bars to horse race tracks my dad was somebody he wasn't particularly you know he again he doesn't like hearing this but i love you know and i don't i don't only when he's teasing me do i ever like roast him back about it my mom put it best he wasn't interested in children like he he had kids because it was part of the thing at the time when they were still married it was part of the whole uh you know his business and his his family was more for appearances but he really didn't care about like being involved in our lives too much he's not interested you know you know he'd buy placate us with whatever toys at christmas and stuff but um i think the most interesting every parent back in the day they're like okay yeah okay go yeah, on back in the day it was back in the day like today parents you know they're in love with their children it's disgusting you know and, and, and the kids grow up you know healthy oh you know, screw that you know i don't want to see that it's, get a room um but no i i uh i it was just back then that that would he he really just didn't have that much of an interest in our he would you know he would feign an interest as most parents would do but um but when they got divorced um or were separated and got divorced my dad's worst habits were to get me and my sister and and primarily me and he would go do the things he wanted to do which was go to the bar uh, go to the horse race track and gamble. Go to sporting events. Uh, go to spring trainings and things and whatever. Like, and you know, I had no interest in sports. He he still insisted that I had interest in sports. I said, no, Dad, you had interest in sports. I was trying to placate an adult. There's a difference, you know. I you know, and you were very you it was you were, it was very tense being around you. So when you were happy, I was happy in order to buy because oh good my dad's not acting insane right now yes let's go watch these guys throwing a ball around you know i don't care and um and so and it's funny you know for people to kind of like you know i think some of it's tough for him to hear because it takes him back to that point and sometimes you know truth is truth isn't easy but we we've gone through so much i don't feel the need to throw that in his face anymore about all of that but I, I just felt comfortable in a lot of sleazy environments um, as a kid. And I, when I say I feel comfortable, it, that was even before drinking or drugging. Like I like, it, it's funny when I got into comedy because yeah, I'm, I, I also played in music in a lot of all kinds of, you know, grimy environments and, and I enjoyed it. Um, do I feel like I wanted to spend my life in those environments? Probably not. But I'm also, I'm not like, uh, you know, if you saw, like I rent a room, I got, I got roommates in, in a, in a house. Like I'm, I'm not somebody that needs a lot, I think to, uh, to function. I'm not, I, I still feel like I have too much. Um, it's hard for me to keep things minimal scale and all that kind of stuff. Cause I love to collect stuff. Um, like and there's a time <laughs> when I had room for it, but it's like you know now i try to like i try to keep whittling it down like okay yeah i'm getting stuff but i need to whittle stuff down and um and so so when i got into when i got into recovery and at the time comedy is a grimy environment 
type of thing when it's at its you know lowest level even at the club level um not many go on to the to the auditorium theater level and that's that's a whole other thing with comedy but it's not a far cry from the bottom to the top comedy is a lot like professional wrestling where those at the bottom it's a fine line between those at the bottom and those at the top it really has a lot to do with your age what talent your luck all that kind of stuff um but you know it's why they always say be careful how you treat people on your way up because you're going to see those people on your way down yeah, very quickly yeah i always say that all over day <laughs> yeah and and so i ended up uh i ended up when i got into recovery the coolest thing about it was i never really cared about drinking i didn't drink until i was over 21 um yeah i tried a few times i thought it was disgusting and i was more of a i was i was more of a, an lsd psychedelic uh type of mentality because I love music and it affected my ability to like interpret and hear music and I love scary music and and I got into more more esoteric and and abstract sounds and so that was kind of my appeal into music weed I didn't really even get into also until like probably my senior year in high school and and, and all that and then it became kind of intertwined in my identity while also I was dealing with a lot of life stuff that I didn't realize at the time um, I was kind of avoiding feelings, diving into drugs. Um, and I'm grateful it wasn't hard drugs at the time. Uh, yeah. But then again, might have if I would have done hard drugs younger and didn't die, maybe I would have found recovery sooner. I don't know. There's all kinds of paths. But um, I, uh, so when I ended up, I, I, I ended up feeling very comfortable in these environments. And when I found comedy uh, and, and started to, to see progress enough to be like, okay, I think this path is is for me, even though it's later in my life and all that. And I got into it more to be a cool old man comic, not because I'm looking to be some 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 young hotshot. Um, I never, you know, I've never, I've always felt like an old man even as a kid. So really? I feel like oh, this will be perfect. I'll grow into my old man curmudgeon self and hopefully be develop my comedy voice enough to be, yeah, the cool old man. That, that can even appeal to youngsters when I'm in my 50s and 60s as a comic and, and have the years of experience that hopefully will make me funny to them at that time. Um, I, mean, I, then, got, uh, I just got a question for you. Uh, yeah. um, you know, I mean, from, I mean, since you started late in the game in comedy, I, that's, I mean, what were you doing before com comedy? I mean, were, were well, you that's like well, I played music, not professionally, but I was, I mean, I made some money at it, but in our scene of music, you, your whole goal is authenticity, which means you're not, you're not going to make money to, as a professional musician right, in that. Right, right, right. Plus I didn't know if I was that good. Um, I could play guitar, bass and drums, but I would supplement that doing all kinds of odd jobs. And the job I did the most for 14 years was a video game tester. Okay. Uh, I've I worked in video game testing for Sony, uh and then atari and um later on i worked at sega crystal dynamics which makes the tomb raider games um i worked in startups uh one called lime life that went out of business after like a couple of years and then i worked for zynga which was popular in the 2010 area where they were making the social media games and, and um and then my last job was at a place called big point that still exists I, I looked them up recently and um but i i got let go from my last qa job in um january of 2012 while i was in my first couple of years of doing stand-up and it was difficult keeping a day job while 
while navigating doing stand-up and uh i those jobs a lot kind of um they were environments where i could thrive being an addict at the time when it was just drinking and, and smoking weed and doing occasional psychedelics but when i got into cocaine um powders i, I tried doing uh tried snorting speed which is meth uh, a couple times when i needed to like have energy or whatever never got into it too much though thankfully and um but cocaine i got into um, not it, it was a slow gradual progression with that but it, it got introduced into my life I think like somewhere around 1999 or 2000 and then again in 2004 um, and, and periodically throughout my my band experience uh, playing in one particular band and then uh, then it was like around 2006 it was around the area of my first DUI I a friend of mine brought some over and I had a great time and I was like, yeah, man, like a few months later, I was just, I just got this hankering. Like, I feel, I want to get some, I want to get some blow. And, um, and that was kind of the beginning of what became more of a regular appearance of blow of cocaine in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was actually surprised by it because I, I, and I was, I kept it what I felt at a manageable level. Cause I was like, well, I'm only going to do it on the weekends. And next thing you know, I'm doing it occasionally on the weekdays. I'm going to work without having any sleep here and there, not often, but it became a problem that was very difficult to manage. But I also felt I, it was oddly enough. I liked the challenge of it for some reason. It was kind of, it was one of those, I used to insist that, Oh, cocaine's just like the marijuana of all hard drugs. Like it's not that bad. Right. And, um, and meanwhile, my life is slowly falling apart, little by at, at a at a very it wasn't a steep drop, but at a very steady downward path. Because and, there are things you weren't focusing on or or, or attending to. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 not even noticing that it was a problem, kind of in developing a strong like slow build of denial of the fact that it was a problem. And having other having these problems affect and manifest in other areas of my life, it was it was really tricky. And so when I what's funny is, um, so that job enabled all that, and I hated the job. By the time I was in, getting into comedy, I hated working in QA testing. People love those jobs. I did too. There was a time when I loved it when it was just the games and writing bugs, and and that was my job. But when I had to start getting into the administrative aspect like the the only way you progress at those jobs is if you have goals of being a producer or a lead on a team or just something where you're elevated i was i there's just something to this fucking life i don't like I, i'm <laughs> i like just doing my shit at a steady time pace i don't care about progressing i uh i'm like can i just do my job and you leave me alone i collect my paycheck and i think a lot of people are like that yeah and, yeah and there's something to i remember george carlin has a great bit about people about motivation like everybody needs to be motivated and he's like no as a matter of fact i think we live in a world that suffers entirely from too much motivation like what's wrong with not doing shit and and, and just kind of like in that aspect and and because i as much as i i can be you know i can work hard i can do all that stuff but i love also i need days where i don't do shit just something to unwind to everybody now calls it self-care 
you know, yeah, 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 self care. Yeah, do your self care. Yeah, no shit. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I just call it a day where I, I don't do shit. All right, that's and there's nothing wrong with needing those days of just having a day where you're kind of free because those days go by so fast because right. you, you know, it's like time, especially as you get older, the the time goes by fast. But what's funny, recovery puts me in a place where. It is hard for me now, harder for me now to not do shit than it was before, which I feel grateful for where I'm like, wow, I don't like sitting still and not doing anything because when the pandemic hit and all my jobs were dried up, you know, I can't, shows are getting canceled. We're not knowing what we're going to do. I sat there and I, and I, cause I was a little nervous at first. My recovery's put me in so much headspace of, of a faith in the unknown that I knew in the past, I would freak out, you know, if a, if a you know, bee landed on a car window or something, just, you know, and, and because my nerves were so shot with anxiety because of all the drugs and, and, and I didn't do them a lot. It was just a steady diet of them. And it, and it messes with your mind and it messes with your day-to-day chemistry. When I got into recovery and I started getting time clean and sober, what I didn't realize is I'm like, oh, the drugs and the alcohol were what was what was stifling they were giving me anxiety more than i thought it was alleviating it because once you removed them and i had time and and work on myself and and in my 12-step program i started developing a sense of calm that i never experienced before or if i had had yeah no i never even had this when i before i picked up drugs and alcohol i always felt anxious i always felt fearful and, and a lot of that was uh, uh, also a factor from the, the relationship that you had before with your dad from history. Oh, yeah. No, completely. It was not, I, and it was my dad and a little bit of my mom. My mom wasn't someone who inspired fear, but I think, you know, and she, they, and these are parents, they're young parents. They did the best they could. They did much yeah. better than, you know, if they're I. They're great you know, parents, you know what I mean? It, all, you know, all, like me, all parents, we, they, uh, you know, they just navigate to the best they can, you know. They some and some, or you know, they they kind of take they uh, make up for it later, or uh, you yeah. know. <laughs> my mom was the one. My mom was the one who really uh, gave me a sense of calm, and my dad was definitely the the antagonist in my life through much of it. But um, it, 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 it's it's but in the in the end, I knew he was trying even though it was very it was it was very misguided and um it took time it took me i took two years off of being like and like uh you know in my early 20s i think the best thing for our relationship was i put our 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 relationship on time out and didn't talk to him for two years and that really that sent a message and um you know because he is a good man i knew that about him i just needed him to be that good man when he talked to me because it's like I'm not your employee I'm not obligated to you for anything matter of fact I was the one that didn't want to visit you growing up because of of how you treated me and mom was he always used to try to tell me that my mom was was trying to twist me against him and it's like no matter of fact that you need to thank your upright walking god that's the woman you divorced because she was the one who would always be saying, you need to have a relationship with your father. He loves you. I know it's tricky to see that, but you will will appreciate it later on. And she was right. Mm -hmm. She was right. Even though it took some time, it took me having to stand up to him and all that. And, um, and, And we have an incredible relationship today. You know, he can, we we even we we sometimes we've had I've been able to make amends to him 
and talk about stuff that I did back then that I never thought I'd be able to talk to him about. The fact that I stole money from him, the fact that uh, you know, there's there was there was a time I didn't tell him about the time I was arrested for LSD possession and spent like a night in juvenile hall because I didn't have to because I was dealing with the consequences of it over the course of a summer. My mom said, "If you want to tell your dad, you can tell him. It's up to you." And I said, uh, "Well, you know what? What doesn't you know? What he doesn't need know that won't hurt him." It did years later when I brought it up, talking about you know recovery and this exp one night we were we were on a trip in Vegas. We were actually going. He took me to see Britney Spears because he got tickets. And my dad's an old creep, and 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 I'm just like him. I'm like, yeah, let's go see Britney Spears. And uh, and we we went. We were the only straight dudes there. It felt like it was so funny. And uh, and and it was a great show too. Like I had a great time. And then the lunch before I'm about to go home. Uh, uh, he called me an Uber to come to take me to the airport because he was staying there for business. I'm talking about this time where I'm, I, I was like, yeah, you know, it really kind of dawned on me something, something about my recovery and yada, yada. And it was the night I was, I was arrested or the night that I was in juvenile hall for LSD possession. And I tell him all this as if he already knows it. And he goes, David, this, this might be a surprise to you, but this is the first I've ever heard about you being arrested and spending a night in juvenile hall. And I thought about it and I'm like, oh, that's right. I never told you. <laughs> and, and I can see the hurt on his face. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and I said, well, here's the thing, Pop. This is what happened. And we, and we, all, I had 10 minutes left until the Uber shows up. So now I got to like kind of, you know, point this out. And I said, this is what happened. And this is what, this is what the outcome was. And, uh, and this is why I didn't tell you. And my dad said something, you know, the difference between the man he was and the man he is now. Um, he said, David, you know what? I probably didn't deserve to know at the time. And, um, and for my dad being the way that he is, that was probably the most incredible, like he doesn't even realize it. Like when I, if I told him about that moment later, how much that meant to me, he, he would be like, that's what I said. Are you kidding me? Are you, why, why didn't you tell me? Like he would get re-pissed off all over again. But, um, but that moment, he just, it was, it was really incredible to see him have that level of understanding of both who he was at that time and knowing that I'm not, that he's a totally different person. Like, you know, he's still the same guy, but he's gone through so much and we've all grown, he knew to let it go. Right. And, 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 and then later on, I know, and I dealt, I did 12 step work around this because I realized there were other amends that I needed to make to him, but I didn't know how, because I saw the hurt in his eyes from that. And he's the type of guy where he would rather not know than know if it's going to hurt him. He's that, he, again, the narcissist, he's selfish. At, at his core and I don't want to use that as an excuse to not make an amends but I also one of the things of our program is that we make amends unless it injures others that's mm -hmm. one of the key points of amends it's like because sometimes if you're trying to make amends and say it's going to reopen wounds of people of their own trauma then it's better to make living amends in another way that doesn't because then it's like you need to do something to show your your accountability but you need to leave your ego out of it in order to, to make things right, but to not have to, to get the credit for it. That's where your ego kind of comes into play because sometimes you can hurt other people by trying to make things right just to make you feel better. Right. And, and that's not, it's a real tricky gray area in our, in our program. I'm really grateful that I, I was able to navigate all that because I'm willing to, to, to go ahead. And, and even so, I, I'm the type of person that used to use the truth when I was drinking and drugging. I had no problem throwing <clears throat> throwing what I felt was like the brutal truth in your face 
because it was a defense mechanism to keep people at bay, to, to hurt them, you know, to avoid my own feelings. And that was something that I knew based on my resentments with my father. I'm like, oh yeah, I'd have no problem talking about the past with him because I know it would hurt him. And, and that was a difference of knowing that like, wow, I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to, to unload any guilt of stuff that I know is real with, with my own history with them just to alleviate me, even if it, because I know it'll hurt them and I'm not, I'm, I don't want to do that. Uh, and, but I, but I still, if there's an opportunity, I told myself, I talked to my sponsor and I said, if there's ever a window of opportunity where I find it, he can accept it and it'll be okay. I'll talk to him about these other amends that, uh, and I made an indirect amends actually to him. He's a rich dude now. He used to be bankrupt and then he's, now he's rich. So money isn't like repaying money that I stole from him isn't gonna help anything. But what I had, what I did was he was offering to pay for something uh, for me. And I said, you know what, Pop, I got it. And guess what? You still paid for it. Just know that. That's that's all I told him. I said, you, you still paid for this. Uh, I'm paying for it, but I'm not. You're the one who paid for it. Just, just don't worry about it. And he didn't ask questions. And then later on, we were talking about something. And he, he said when we were having we were having lunch, and he goes, "Well, you never stole for your drug addiction, or like you know, you never stole from family or anything. It wasn't like that bad with you, right?" And I said, "No, but I did steal from you when I was a kid before I got into drugs. Like I was, I had compulsive behavior pop, and there was a whole summer where I was really pissed at having to stay with you. Uh, the first year that I I worked at this this corn dog stand at the Alameda County Fair." And I ran out of my money because I, I would just buy cassettes with it. I was into punk and heavy metal and all that. And um, and I used to steal quarters out of his, uh, I found where his change stash was in his drawer. Uh, Cause you know, I'm a sneaky little evil kid, man. I, I go through shit, found quarters uh, to go so I could go buy Slurpees at the 7-Eleven around the corner. I was just a big Slurpee and comic book head. And uh, and so I knew where that shit was before I got this job, and I made I made like in two weeks I made uh, and plus I won a bet with something, so I, I had like seven, a little over between seven and eight hundred dollars. So I'm rich yeah. as a thirteen year old kid working illegally under the, the legal age limit for this corn dog stand in, in Pleasanton. I'm I'm now rich, and and that was the worst two weeks of my life working there too. I had a fucking bunch of experiences there that were uh, annoying. But um, I swore I'd never worked there. And of course I worked there voluntarily the very next year. Um, but I I, uh, I ended up running through that money real quick, buying tacos at Taco Bell and going to, uh, I also, I splurged for my friends. You know, I was like surprised at how generous I was. I was like, yeah, tacos are on me. We're getting all, we're getting all the tacos in the world and uh, let's go to the warehouse. We'll go buy cassettes, whatever you want on cassette, I got you. And uh, I think I ran through that money in two weeks. Oh, wow. And then, um, so yeah, and now I need to Still didn't notice that. <laughs> I don't, it's, that's addict compulsive behavior right there, even as a kid. And so I, uh, I was going to get Slurpee money from his drawer and I found this pouch in where he kept his stash money. And in that pouch was money, uh, like a roll of hundreds that he was hiding from my stepmom. Uh-huh. And so I, what I would do, and I'm, I was a smart little kid. I didn't take a bunch of them because that's obvious. I just took one <laughs> and I held onto it and I waited to see if he noticed. And like two weeks went by, he didn't notice. 
and then I went and bought cassettes and then I would just do that every like once every like month or so like I, I it was a slow burn and uh, and I told him I think I, I stole roughly around the area of like 500 600 dollars off them and um and then this and then the stash disappeared <laughs> so, I think, and I'm pretty sure that was just his gambling money because he, he he liked to gamble and became he used to be a terrible gambler and then he became a, a gambler that was manageable and all that. Right. And, um, so, and I was able to talk to him about it. And I said, and I made amends to you. I said, dad, you're, you're, you know, you got money. Like, even though money matters to you, I know it does, but it does no good to me to pay you back. Mm-hmm. When it's like, what I ended up doing was you offered to pay for a plane ticket to one of my things. And I said, no, I'm, I'm buying it, but you paid for it. Like, and that's what, that was what that was about. And he totally understood. And it was, it was really cool to like, just kind of, that the uh, it was cool to be able to communicate that with them to help them understand what that was about and it, it's confusing to it. it used to be more confusing to him but now he gets it it's like it's it's this program of just developing a sense of accountability for my past and and still being in touch with it i'm still you know ashamed of it but it, it's not a, a shame that makes me want to want to hurt my my myself over it it's uh and there's a lot more to all that um so yeah, and this I've never fully answered the question you asked earlier about being in those environments. Um, when I got into comedy, or once I started getting into recovery, one of the things about it, I heard so much. I, I put my recovery as my first priority, and I said, you know what? If comedy has to take a back seat, this is my main priority. I have an opportunity now to really to get this licked, and I want to give it my my hundred uh, percent. And and I did. And the thing that I didn't anticipate was that while I was doing that, comedy opportunities that I had been working for popped up and I was able to still do those. While having my 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 recovery be my main priority, I was still able to do these gigs would pop up. If it in if it interrupted, if it, like if it was a choice between having to maintain my 90 meetings in 90 days or do a gig. I have to do the meeting. Uh, no, it's I, this is what takes precedence. But luckily, I didn't have many of those. Uh, that didn't come up too often. Not only that, I would have one of the things I hated is if I had a gig coming up, especially one that paid, and it got canceled. Right. That would piss me off. Something awful. I, but my attitude then became, well, if it got canceled, I can go to a meeting. And this is probably my higher power, if it exists. Uh, probably my higher power's way of saying you need a meeting, go to the meeting, don't go to the, you know, you don't, obviously the gigs will come later, get your recovery and your mind right. And um, so that was the attitude I took throughout a lot of it, it early on. And someone said this, and I, I, I really feel that this is kind of the case with me. So long as I have business in a place, like I'm, I'm going into a bar, I'm going, I'm going, I'm doing the gig at a club or anything where they're, I mean, cause the, not, the comedy gig, all we're really doing is entertaining people so that more drinks are sold. <laughs> so that yeah, more food yeah, people. yeah. It's it's you know it's not exactly the most you know a lot of people are oh it's an art form this it's a distraction while a hustle is being played on you which is not a bad hustle it's what it is it's what all of you know business is but um, and yeah I'm trying to be good at it but the the irony being I do a lot of my re- material on recovery so nothing cracks me up more than doing recovery material to a room full of people that are being encouraged to drink more um 
And, uh, and of course, I don't want people getting wasted. But at the same time, it's like, I don't, I don't have anything against people drinking or recreationally imbibing in what they do. Once you get into the harder drugs, yeah, it's a little, you know, a little tough to justify. But I, I, just because I have a disease of addiction doesn't mean that I, uh, that I, I frown upon other people having their, having their good times, whether it's balanced, whether it's imbalanced. And I'm always a resource if anybody needs to ask about possibility of recovery. Um, but when I started going to these environments, uh, it was described at a meeting by one guy. He goes, you know what? Some of my friends asked me, like, how do I, how do I, you know, go and be in these places? And, and I don't want to drink when everyone else is drinking. And I said, this is my recovery. When I do it and I'm, I'm doing it and active in it, it's like a space suit that I wear. And I go out there and, uh, and I'm able to go out into space and I can breathe and I can do all this stuff. And it's not, and I don't have a desire to, 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 you know, take off the space suit and want to, you know, get all mixed up in it. And I was like, that's a good, it's, it, 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 he's right. Like there's this force field of, of my recovery that makes me like, I don't want that. Cause I remember when it, I, I, I'd relapsed so many times when I didn't have recovery, when I was trying to stop on my own. And that feeling was always like, I'm, I'm, I'm just holding back this this beast that is going to eventually take over i'm in quicksand i i'm going to drown in it and eventually i'm going to grab a drink and and it's gonna it's you know it's gonna screw me up and um i've only in the entire time uh, it'll be nine years september 29th but in my entire recovery i've only had one moment where uh, uh there was a chemical in my system a friend of mine went to get me a sugar-free Red Bull from a bar and she didn't see it be prepared. She gave it to me and um, and it had a straw in it, a lot, of, a lot of ice in the glass. And they gave me the can too, which had a good like half amount of Red Bull in it, which I thought was weird because I'm like, well, there's a lot of glass, well, there's a lot of ice. So it's probably just, yeah. So, so um, and there's a straw in it. So I'm drinking from the straw that's all the way at the bottom and and i was talking a lot like i am right now and i was telling some story and in the middle of i i drank probably about like you know a few sips and i was down to like probably a third of the glass and telling the story and i was like yeah i feel real good tonight man it's a good time you know good friends and you know just telling the story just take the next sip and that's when i, I it was the first taste where i'm like there might be alcohol in this yeah, yeah. I, they made me a vodka red bull and they poured, they did the whole thing where they put the Red Bull in and they poured the shot on top. So the shot was seeping into the bottom. I didn't taste it until I got to the point where there was more more vodka in it. And once I detected it, I turned to my friend. I'm like, did you see them make this? And she goes, she had like a deer in headlights look like, oh my God, what, what? And I'm like, oh, I just think there's vodka in this. And she was like, oh my, oh, oh shit. And she took the drink and went to the bartender. And sure enough, the bartender made a vodka Red Bull when she only said sugar-free Red Bull. And um, and then she was, she thought she ruined my recovery. This is like after four, this is four Aww. years in. Yeah, she she was so freaked out. And I said, no, it's not, a, she was like, I, didn't I, just, you just relapsed. I'm like, no, a relapse would be, a relapse would be I, if I finish this drink knowing that there's vodka in it. That's a relapse. That's the choice. I, all this is is an accident, and it's it's my fault because I didn't see the drink prepared. I should have been more vigilant and all of that, but I wasn't. And uh, but now I know better to keep an eye on what's being prepared for me, 
so that I'm more mindful of my recovery when I'm in a I'm in a bar environment. All right, accidents happen, but I'm not looking for this to happen. And I'm glad this happened because I was kind of reaching the point in my recovery, wondering what if, wondering like I wonder how I would react if a substance was in my system again. Like I don't know. And and I used to enjoy that, but now I'm like really savoring this this sobriety of mine. I wonder if I would go with it or not. And sure enough, here I have the answer. My higher power gave me this opportunity to be like, hey Dave, maybe let's let's see how you would react. And how my reaction was was I was like, oh my god, this is awesome. I don't want this anymore. Like as soon as I felt, even though I I felt like oh, I'm having a good time or whatever, I knew something felt different. Right. And once I identified it, I'm like, oh, it's the alcohol. Because I can feel good, but I never feel this good just by itself. And I'm like, it was alcohol. And I'm like, holy shit, this is. And I, I, I it really, it, it energized me in such a way about my recovery because I was so grateful that here I had this answer, like, wow, I have alcohol in my system, the tiniest bit. I even felt it, and I don't want to keep drinking it. That is, I was thrilled, and I and I, I told her I said this this was you don't understand it's hard for you to, hard to explain but I, I've heard shares about this very experience happening, and it's this is what's helping me and um, it helped me to identify it now so yeah I'm not sitting here going like oh my recovery is ruined I would have a terrible recovery if that happened and I thought that that's what killed it. Because my recovery is not just it, the drugs and the alcohol were just a symptom of a deeper problem of my character defects, and I had done the work at, and continued to do the work to to identify that and to to behave on that so that I I, I maintain a daily uh, a daily inventory of my behavior of my life so that I can go through make amends as I as I go along. And, and try to identify any negative patterns of, of my defective behavior resurfacing. It's like whack-a-mole, as you know, if you play, ever played the whack-a-mole game, it's like these problems don't go away, they just become less frequent the more that we work it and, and develop balance, but they surf, we're, we're human beings, they're gonna come back. You know, they're gonna, there's, they're gonna, you know, it's just like anything else that's compulsive, it's mental illness, and you, you're, you're never cured, but you're in recovery treating your disease and that's it's just i could say it's like going to the spiritual gym so you want to maintain your you work out i see your pictures tree yeah <laughs> so, and how do you how do you do maintain that you don't just like work out you get the muscles and all right i'm good this is how i'm going to stay no yeah. you got to keep going and you, you do a steady uh, a steady workout regimen throughout so that you can maintain your physique maintain your health and you're not burning yourself out on it or anything like that that's what recovery is just for for the mind and the spirit uh to to just to, so that i can maintain this this sense of faith on a regular basis that allows me to work in environments where people are drinking possibly even doing drugs and i'm not i don't have the desire to do that to, right, to, right. to be part about that and then once i'm done with business you will rarely see me hanging out uh ever in those environments that's kind of it's not something that like it's something naturally I, I I I distance myself from. I've had a few times where I've been in environments that I didn't need to be in because you know just because I was hanging out or trying to hang out. And when you don't drink and you don't do drugs and you're hanging out with people where the very reason they're all hanging out is to drink or do drugs, it's boring. It's fucking boring. 
Um, so there's not, I don't have any work there, any business there. Most of the time when that's the case, when I'm doing that, it's because I'm seeing a woman who's involved in all that. And that's never been a positive thing. It's never like gone on to any positivity uh, in terms of results. So I've learned, yeah, if a woman is making me do things I wouldn't normally do to try and maintain some level of a relationship, she's probably not the one for me. And, and so I, and as much as that might suck, uh, you know, and that, those were things that used to trigger me more was disappointment in potential relationships. I've done these work now where it's like, I've, I've, I've been able to really navigate that aspect. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't really date too much these days. I'm very comfortable being solo. Um, I'm open to possibility. Same here. Same here. <laughs> yeah. But I'm very comfortable. And, and it's, so it would take, someone's someone I dated someone uh, last December and it was it was pretty nice it was cool um but once I again I'm starting to see patterns where again I'm I'm having to not be myself in order to maintain this and and it's she was she wasn't a threat to my recovery or anything like that but what but it was something that felt out of character Right. I've been in a relationship. My best relationship was with someone who's still my friend today, who um, really our relationship wasn't so much as romantic as it was. Uh, it was like intimately platonic. Like we were dating. We thought we were dating. But at the time we were more just like, you know what? We're like emotional support humans for each other after uh, after many relationships that just sucked. And we were just we were just it was just nice to be with somebody that was polite and, and considerate. Right. And that's what we did for a year. And then we realized, you know what? We feel better. We're good. And we have something to kind of something to measure future relationships against that we, I was like, yes, I need this plus the intense attraction of, of you know, the, that other aspect. But I have something to measure it against. And I was dating this girl last December and we had the attraction, which I was surprised because I wasn't immediately attracted to her right away, but it developed. And, and then over time I realized, ah, the part that, the, the part that I had that with my previous girlfriend, this, this aspect of, of really feeling comfortable with someone, I, it's, it's not there that I thought, like I thought it would be just, right. in, and it was nothing against her. It was just like, this isn't a proper fit. Right. And she had a hard time hearing it at first. Uh, and I kind of had to like resolve that slowly over time. Like, and again, recovery. I, I didn't just break it off right away. I saw she was having a bad week. She was leaving a, a terrible job. And I was like, okay, I need to just placate her. She's crying right now. And she shouldn't be crying. Like nothing wrong with crying, but we haven't been together long enough to be crying over this. And she's having a bad week. So she needs to just wait till she gets out of this job wait till she gets an, and wait i need to wait till she gets another job gets her confidence back and that's when i pull off the band-aid and break away when she and she'll feel better and sure enough i was dead right like as soon as she got her confidence back and she was feeling better about herself and all that i'm like all right we're not right for each other all right we, we're gonna have to stop dating and 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 she totally handled it didn't break down crying i was like yes because i you, you don't want to kick people when they're down and and i totally and i didn't I did go out on one more date with her to make it to make sure that I was making the right decision, and I did. And 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 we're not like you know, like if we saw each other again, it would be positive. Like she she wanted she said it would be cool if I came to your shows. I'm like absolutely, yeah, I have no problem with you coming to shows. Um, I was even still tempted to try and call her and see about a booty call, 
but uh, <laughs> you know, but I'm just not that guy, um, you know. And but but I think fondly of her, and that's that's a much different person than I used to be. And so that's the thing is is this recovery program allows me. It's my accommodation. Twelve step recovery is my accommodation in dealing with the world. It is my my spiritual ramp for me to get in the building of being a functional member of society right and and to be able to do this wonderful job of making people laugh and out of my own kind of psychosis and to navigate that world that's filled with all of these tricky egos that i may not agree with i don't see eye to eye with i you know people that i may not even genuinely like but then i learn about them enough to realize that I'm more, I have a lot more in common with people than I realize. I some of the people that I used to really not get along with, I've become good friends with, and and it's it's a great feeling to know that like the more that I'm comfortable with people that I thought I used to think I was difficult or that I used to think were difficult or that I really just didn't think I'd like, the more comfortable I am in like accepting them as they are, the more comfortable I am with myself. So I got and, a question for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, since like you and you and I both uh, come from you know addiction and, and and sobriety, you know I I I find myself. I mean, even to this day, I have those moments where I feel like, oh man, I want to. You know, God, it'd be great to have some ecstasy or you know, and and, <laughs> and but then I start, then I quickly, but then I quickly. It, it goes away really quickly and going, you know, the reason why that is I start to remember back going that feeling that you get when you're going, when you're coming off of it and you're, and you're feeling funky and dirty and you're like going, I don't want to be there. I'm like a very clean person. I was wondering how you call that. We call that playing the tape, playing yeah. the tape in your head, um, play the tape of what will happen. Um, I, and it, I, I would be dishonest to say that I, I don't have that very same the that I don't occasionally like this is that's it's it's part of being an addict and alcoholic you're gonna have moments where it's like ah it'd be great to have a beer right now or it'd be great to like I remember that feeling and then just as you just described all that's gonna happen is yeah and then after that I'm gonna have another or I'm gonna I'm gonna want to do when I get some weed and then you know after that probably just a you know another week or so i'm gonna want to get cocaine and then i'm gonna want to go ahead and you know go to the strip club and lose you know thousands of dollars on on dances and drugs all night and and, and still feel empty in the morning and uh and then i'm gonna want to go and, and just lose everything that i've worked so hard to get and, and ruin all credibility and, and and all of that it's it's the the thing about it with uh, that's what i described again like i had that experience of and it developed a whole new sense of confidence once that that I had that what if experience of I wonder what if I had you know and I had that little slightest the slightest I haven't felt alcohol in like have that effect on me since the first time I took a sip of it when I was younger and felt the effects of like a vodka shot and when I had that feeling, I'm like, I can feel my mood being altered. I had the same, th uh, similar thing happen. Um, I had a girlfriend at a time who was, uh, she was, she was trying to dabble in recovery and she got these caffeine gummies. Now I drink a lot of caffeine. All right. I, I, you know, that's something I'm, you know, I got to kind of work on right now. Um, 
I'm drinking a Red Bull in the morning. <laughs> but um, but she would got these caffeine gummies, and I took one one time, and I didn't. I I felt it was like, oh, cool, yeah, you know, I didn't. I noticed a little pep in my step, but it wasn't it wasn't something that felt mind altering at all. Right. Took it another time. I, I had one more another time. And I was on BART and I could totally feel something different, like a head change. Uh, as, as you know, we used to describe in smoking enough weed, so you got a head change. And that felt mood altering. And I was like, okay, no more caffeine gummies. You know, as much as I can drink caffeine and whatever like that, this, this gummy felt the slightest of mood altering. So I'm not going to do that again. Cause I, I just felt something different and shift in my head. And, and it because it's not it's something that like I I have this newfound again it's it not newfound now I mean it's like it's going on nine years I'm about to hit in another year God willing I'll have ten years and I remember when I got into recovery thinking like am I gonna have to am I gonna be doing this in ten years like not knowing what the future yep. was being so angry and bitter over the fact that I have to do this program now I'm like I'm never the funny thing I always I, what I have always remembered are the last 48 hours of when I after I got my second DUI after I drank and the last time I got to use any mind-altering substance it was two different opportunities where I smoked weed on the Friday and the Saturday before I went to my first meeting on the Sunday and they were the worst they were they were the I had no effect from the marijuana I felt miserable from knowing that I just got this second DUI and was gonna have to completely change everything in my life to, to navigate whatever was going to happen from that point forward. I was about to get kicked out of my parents' house after moving back in there in 2010 with the game plan of only being there for a few months after saving up some money. Next thing you know, it's 2013 in the fall. And I've been navigating, negotiating with my drug addiction, jobs, uh, maximizing my unemployment for like going on two and a half years. And uh, while trying to establish a comedy uh, uh, reputation, which I have to say in retrospect, my, my plan worked. <laughs> it just was not going to work until I got into 12 step recovery. Cause as much as I was trying to like tell my parents, like I'm getting like, you gotta just have some faith in me. You got whatever, but it's hard to have faith in somebody when you see them still struggling with drugs and alcohol while trying to navigate this plan. There was no way I was going to execute this plan if I kept drinking and getting high. And and not only that, because the fact is I was only gonna be able to get sober with their help. And I would only be able to become a working comic if I got sober, if I got clean and sober. So it's, it, everything, everything happened. I had the best case scenario of a worst case scenario when I got my second DUI. Uh, I tell the story of it. I don't know if you heard it in my act in any of the performances you've seen, but I, I basically got pulled over uh, on my way back with a point when an alcohol level and I've never had cops that were cooler. These, these were like angels as far as I see them. There were these two young dudes that when they rolled up, I said, officer, you don't need to put me through any of the tests. I'm drunk. I'm getting a, I'm getting a DUI tonight. Go ahead and give me the breathalyzer. I, I just surrendered. And it was the beginning of this surrender that led to my ultimate surrender when I went into a 12-step meeting. And it was a rough 48 hours before I did that, before I went into the um, to the meeting, because 
I had to sit with my guilt. I had to sit with this stupid feeling. It was seven years after my first DUI. I thought I was smart enough. I did a lot of dumb shit in all those seven years, but I still thought that I this was avoidable. And I have never felt so outsmarted by my own disease. And that's when I was when I when I sat there and I was just sort of like, wow, this is something I never I never I I knew it was coming in a way like if I kept doing but I thought I I thought I had it like I thought I could outsmart it and I didn't and I never felt so stupid and I remember I, I went home what was so funny I was in a drunk tank with the six other five or six other people there's one guy who stood out to me this one dude turned out he lived when we were all walking back because uh, they, they parked my car in a nearby parking lot. They didn't even impound it. These guys were so cool. They parked it in a movie parking lot yeah, really that was like two miles away. Okay. I had to walk just like, you know, like 45 minutes to get to my car. And um, I'm walking and and we all started kind of like chatting. The, the other guys that were in the drunk tank on our way out. And uh, and some of them were taking part. And one of them was like, oh, where are you going? And like, oh, he goes, ah, oh, Union City. And, and I was like, dude, I live in Union City, man. I can give you a ride if you want. You know, I don't even know this guy. And um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So he rolled back with me. And we had this conversation. Um, you know, he got arrested for, like, I think, drunk and disorderly or something. And, and we were just talking. He was like, so what, what's got you down, man? And I'm like, uh, dude, I just got a second DUI, man. And I'm like, I have to change my ways. Like, I'm not... I don't think like I, I was like I've been I think I got a real problem with drugs and alcohol I'm gonna have to deal with it and uh, and he goes oh yeah well you know what man you, you'll get this like he goes I, I wouldn't worry like it was he wasn't like trying to be play he was like he when I dropped him off he goes you know what Dave you got this man you'll get through this like and his level of confidence in me without knowing me was was reassuring oddly enough just from some guy and um and i don't even remember his name but i remember what he looked like kind of and he uh so i and i i went home and i was just like okay i'm gonna have to i the thing was and this is funny this is kind of recovery-based behavior similar to what i was talking about with my dad i knew that my parents had a weekend with my nephew that they were really looking forward to that they were doing some some stuff with him and I was like, I'm not, we were having a meeting on Sunday discussing my exit from their house. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna let them have their weekend. Let them enjoy themselves. I'm not gonna ruin that with this news. Sunday, I will let them know what, what is going on here. And I need to make a decision. I need to make a decision what I'm gonna do uh, about you know my future as far as dealing with, the, with my problem. Because this has been an ongoing subject so I tried smoking a bowl that Friday night and I felt terrible. I didn't want, and I, I had more weed. I was just like, I, I don't want to smoke it. And then I tried smoking again one more time on Saturday night. And I'm like, this is the worst weed has ever felt. Weed, weed has ever tasted, whatever. I'm like, I am not even like, there's nothing this is doing for me. And, and I was like, well, I could go to AA, but I know I'm going to keep smoking weed if I just go to AA. Um, I, and it was, it's like, and you can work, I've known people who've gotten clean off of heroin from working in Alcoholics Anonymous program. I just knew that I wanted the, 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 pre, the, I wanted mentally to be free from all substances and that NA focused on being free from all mind altering substances. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go to NA. i had been introduced to it. So, um, so I made that decision Saturday night. I'm going to go to an NA meeting on Sunday after I talked with my folks. 
and we had breakfast and I let them know the news and I let them know this is what I think I, I, I need to do if I'm comfortable with whatever your decision is as far as you know you need to kick me out you need to do whatever but uh, I, I just know that I, I've never given this a shot and I do need to give this a chance and figure out if this will work I don't know if it will work I will know it works if I make it past the three-week mark because that was what my mom pointed out I can when I tried to stop on my own the, the most I could do is three weeks she, and she was the one who counted it because she goes yeah you always go I've, I've like you you always make it to that the most about three weeks and then you get a hankering for wanting to drink or wanting to, to, to smoke again and then it's it's right back it like you know comes back and I'm like huh well I'll know recovery is working if I make it past the three-week mark and so I again I did did everything they suggested I went to that first meeting heard a speaker saw him smiling and in a packed room and I'm like it looked attractive to some extent even though these people look scary as fuck and uh and then I but I I spoke uh started talking to him got some literature got into it and that was the beginning of yeah I started doing 90 meetings in 90 days and in that first week I heard some very powerful shares that I remember to this day I remember I went to go see a girl that I was kind of on again, off again, seeing that that the following weekend. And this is where the beginning of when I knew that, like, wow, this is this is really strange how people respond to me just trying to do a 12 step recovery program. She because she she drank. Um, but, you know, I didn't think she was an alcoholic, per se. She was functional and all that stuff. But I never noticed what a negative person she was. And <laughs> I, 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 it was so strange. I went over her place and or I went met up with her at, at the bar and I thought she was in a different headspace than she was. When I saw her, I was like, oh, I didn't I thought you were in a sad state. And here you are just kind of buzzed, drinking, you know, talking to me on your phone. And we went to her place and, you know, fooled around a little bit. But I, I stayed the night and I said, I got to go to a, a recovery. I saw that there was a meeting near her place at 10 a.m. on that Sunday. And uh, I said, yeah, this works out cool. I can stay the night and then I'm gonna go to this meeting at 10 a.m. She's like, what meeting? And I'm like, uh, I, I mean, I got, you know, I'm, I'm working on staying clean and sober. I'm, I'm in this, I'm starting to do an NA program and all that. And she's like, what? Like, and, and she knew that I drank and smoked weed and all that. It was just like, again, the, the way that people respond to, to me trying to be in 12-step in recovery, I started to see like these, like my higher power is doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. By making these choices, the way that she responded when I had to leave and go to an NA meeting, I'm like, wow, I shouldn't be hanging out with this person. She, she was, I just heard how negative she was. I could hear it. Like, and then she's like, you, you were serious? You're going to, a, to some recovery meeting or NA meeting? I'm like, yeah. And the way you say that makes me want to go even more. So, because I've been going to them all week, and I, I like them. I'm, 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 you know, I'm starting to see a reason, and um, and and I definitely want to get away from you. <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, and I went. And it was one of my favorite meetings that I went to. Uh, that I, I would go to quite often. It's uh, I don't I'm, I bet they still meet too. I don't. The pandemic really shook a lot of things up. Um, but I, I bet if I go on a Sunday at 10 a.m. to that spot. Uh, that they still have their meeting there. It's one of my favorite meetings uh, that I, I went to and got a lot of good recovery out there through a lot of my early recovery. And um, yeah. So it's awesome it's, that yeah. you were able to, to uh, 
you know, you're like, okay, whatever. See ya. Peace. Yeah. It's, you know? it, it's weird when those decisions, that's kind of how in navigating my recovery now, it, and that it, it's same with my brain when like, yeah, the notion of like, ah, oh, would be, you know, it's funny because I, I get paid in weed and alcohol sometimes at gigs, right? And I, this is how much of an addict and self-centered person I'm like, I am not going to turn down compensation, even though I'm not going to use it yeah. because I know many people like I, I, I don't, you know, this saves me having to buy gifts for some people on oh, their, yeah. there you go. Like, whatever. I'm still going to accept this compensation. I'm just not going to use it, but I wouldn't be accepting it if I felt that it was tempting me to break my recovery. I wouldn't do this. And I don't recommend this to anybody in recovery. I only recommend it because again, it's just like how I can work in bars and restaurants and all that stuff. This is a form of currency in this day and age. And I am not, I'm not, I feel a strong sense of myself in in my program and my higher power and all that stuff i'm not uncomfortable being around the substances themselves because they have no power over me. It, it's i'm the one who has the ability to be powerless and develop strength in my faith of being an active participant in my own recovery and if i'm not acting within my principles of my recovery and all that then those things become dangerous. Well, I want to ask you a segue on, on another another topic. Um, um, I noticed that, like, I know you and Nina G, you guys do a lot of touring together. Um, how did you guys meet? And I know you guys have such a very strong bond, and and, and she is, you know, amazing and badass. You know, I mean, tell the world. Um, Nina G is uh, she's someone very near and dear to my heart um you know uh her and her husband oddly enough people think that we were <laughs> that people thought we got married or that she's my girlfriend or, or wife or whatever and i'm like we are like comedy husband and wife more like comedy brother and sister in many respects uh there was a time where i couldn't tell if i was attracted i'd find her very attractive but i couldn't tell if i was into her because i was attracted to her or if it was, there was something it, it, and it's definitely you know as i've become uh, uh closer with her it's like there there's there is a, a very unique bond that i i cherish because i first met her in our the dregs of our open mics in 2010 when we used to uh uh when we started we both started around the same time i think she started a little bit before me maybe um but it was in 2010 and i ran i my first memory of seeing her i might have seen her before but i remember my first memory of really seeing her perform was at a bar uh, that used to have an open mic called McGrath's that was in Alameda, which is where she uh, where she was grew up, where her family's from. She grew up in Alameda, and um, and she stuttered, and she had a strong stutter in her act. But the thing that I noticed with her performance, and she was funny that uh, like open mics are known for being like mostly ter- like mostly the comics are trying to be funny, which is very off putting. And then occasionally you'll get it, you know, comics that might have a joke that works or a set that works. And and when it does, it stands out because mostly open mics are terrible. And and so when someone's funny, you're like, oh shit, someone's actually getting a laugh. And um, Nina performed her set, and the fact that she stuttered so strongly, and and the timing of it felt like it was helping her 
delivery of her jokes mm-hmm. she had a funny set and 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 you were kind of laughing too at the like at the sound of the stutter the stutter sounded funny yeah the way that she did it her face the way her face kind of oh yeah 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 when she yeah. does it and she leaned into it she did it confidently uh which is really with you know knowing her the way i know her now it's really it's really interesting to know that she see, she came off as so confident knowing that she wasn't at the time and this was her stepping into developing that sense of confidence in in delivering her stutter openly in the form that she in the in the medium that she had spent her whole life wanting to do right like i i went into comedy reluctantly she went into comedy because it was a dream and the funny thing is uh so right after her set i i did what a lot of people do i went up to her and i said hey i really enjoyed your set is your stutter real (laughs) (laughs) i I had to had because i was i was a fan of of howard stern which i didn't know at the time she was a huge fan of howard stern and stuttering john was a guy who stuttered but i think he played up his stutter more even though he really stutters but i think he amped it up a lot more for entertainment value and when and soon as she started talking to me and i saw her face contort in a in the stutter i'm like oh no she really stutters like this is that shit wasn't 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 an act and um and i and i I think like i said oh never mind and i also remember her before i even i think it might have been before this part before i talked to her i did my set i don't know if it was the same night but i always remember her I was do- I was doing my set. I was sitting down. I never sit down on a fucking stool, but this was early in in my in my open micing. I, I was sitting down on the stool on the stage, and I was talking about something revolve. I don't even remember because I had some beers in me. Some evolving world politics, which I never I never try to talk about to be funny. I, I don't. I was talking about some because I was also like a big conspiracy theory head, and so I was probably rambling about some bullshit that had nothing to do with anybody's interest in this bar. And there was like a few people there, and I could just look off to the side, and Nina G is dying laughing, like <laughs> sitting there holding her hand over her mouth, and she's probably she's not laughing at the material. She's laughing at just how terrible an idea it is. The fact that I'm talking about whatever subject I was talking about to <laughs> this room full of bar patrons, and I it, it was like that bitch i'm gonna have to i'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> whatever and um and so the thing was is i would see her around um because when you when you're serious about doing this uh you see the people who are like-minded at open mics all over the place i would mostly see her in san francisco or oakland or alameda um but she would i would cross paths with her even at maybe like tommy t's at their open mic or somewhere in santa cruz or something and and she sticks out but um she also kind of was also uh we knew some of the same people from those open mics and um and so we would cross paths a little more and um and we talked a few times but you know it didn't the thing that she always reminds me and i remember this conversation i think it was i want to say either late 2010 or early 2011 um i would see her at the brainwash a lot because we would go you'd go there early to try and get on the list for the brainwash cafe and um and she was there and so and, and i knew her to be a friendly person um and and again i couldn't tell if i was attracted to her or not and and i'm like yeah she's friendly so who cares you know like she you know she's nice she's pretty you know we'll you know it's fun talking to her the thing that was cool about comedy when i first got into it that i really enjoyed um coming from like my background of playing in punk and, and metal bands and like underground scenes that were very open to different person different 
you know, people from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, but more so than that scene in comedy, I became quick friends with people who were very different from me. And like, I became friends with women. I became friends with gay people, uh, more gay people than I, that were in my life already. I was friends with transgender before, you know, before even the term transgender, we had uh, Natasha Muse was someone who I met early on and she's very funny comic. She doesn't really do as much today, but she's, she's a, an SF staple. It was, I started meeting people from all of these different backgrounds that were really pretty cool. Like uh, just, even though we were all trying to be funny and and in these you know drag environments i i took pride in the fact that wow i mean i'm meeting a diverse amount of people i like i started having more black friends than i ever had because i we go we had this open mic at uh at dorsey's locker that's where i would see nina a lot as well and that was one of the one of my favorite open mics because uh, we, we had a, an old school black audience that like you know and we grew up you know watching a lot of that a lot of the sitcoms that were like you know your prior yeah yeah good times what's happening all that kind of stuff and it's like and we had a few i had a few black friends in my area but it was still the suburbs and now i'm getting like i'm now i'm walking into an environment that's like oh this is this is real this is these are these are real folks and they're not like they grew up in the hood, but they're not like the, the they're the parents of like the kids that are kind of like trying to exploit it in the younger ages. This is like old school folks and they will tell you to your face how your act is going as it's going. And you had to be yourself. You had to really, you, you, you could go up there with some bullshit and they'll be like, yeah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Like, you know, just shit like that. And um, one of my favorite jokes I ever wrote, they wrote the punchline for, because this is again, like throughout 2010 to 2013, one of the things I would see a lot of were people who um, were not black, trying to get on stage, getting away with saying the N word. Yeah. Because they saw comics like Louis CK or Doug Stanhope do bits around that word, trying to point out, yes, it's just a word. And they managed to figure out ways, but most of their audiences, they're mostly white Eurocentric. Okay. They're not a lot of blackheads that are, that are going to see those guys, but there's still some who, who, who would be fans, but there was, these were guys who've been doing it for years, who, as I would say, learn how to juggle fire. And if you're going to learn how to juggle fire, you want to learn how to juggle first. Add the fire later when you know how to juggle. All right, because that's those are tricky. That is a, a, a dangerous word to try and mess with at an open mic, especially if you're just trying to get people to laugh. And it's like, oh, you're just trying to, you you, you can't you you don't have the skills to do that. All right, and we would see people even try to do that at Dorsey's, and one of them was this local comic. I don't want to name him. He's he's a good friend of mine now, like not good friend, but he's somebody who I've seen evolve over time. And and black audiences love him, but when he started, he's this white dude who's trying to be like Bill Burr, and he was saying words he had no business saying. And I would and and I, he wasn't the only one though. And I said, there's this kind of trend that I'm seeing, and like. In, in young white dudes trying to get away with saying the, the n-word on stage and I'm like and I, one of the things I told him afterwards I'm like what are you doing man what do you think you're doing like trying to go I said you're trying to like confront some cultural guilt you have being a white man in this culture and all that I said the only thing it's going to make up for two to four hundred years of white people enslaving black people is two to four hundred years of black people enslaving white people fair is fair and he goes oh you ought to say that on stage I said I will if you drop the n-bomb again and I have to follow you and he did he did it at this open mic in San Jose 
He ruined, he totally got nothing from it, bombed his ass off. I followed him and I said that very statement and got laughs from it, from that statement alone. Yeah. Now I thought, well, maybe there's a joke here. Maybe, maybe, cause I, I, sometimes when you pull off something like that in the moment and it gets a laugh, then you like, well, I don't know if there's material here, but let's see, let's try it out. So I tried bringing up that, saying that line, not realizing it's just a premise. I tried saying that line um, and bringing up kind of the setup for it at different open mics and I wasn't getting much. And then there was, I was doing a set at Dorsey's Locker and it was a full room. We had a good size audience and they liked me. They used to call me, uh, they, they called me Jesus all the time when I was there. Um, and and they were like, yeah, I like Jesus over here, man. He, he, you know, he's all right, he's getting better, you know? And um, so I, I went up and I did, and I was, and the thing is too. I, the thing that that audience taught me is don't underestimate the like, don't underestimate their what they will find funny. Like if I have a bit that works in like you know the mostly white audience or whatever, try it there too. All right, it's not. Don't do not try to pander. Do not try to be yourself, mm-hmm. and and let the joke let let you know because again, I didn't grow up in this culture. And one of the things I learned from watching other people is learning how much aspiring comics don't know how to talk to people that they clearly do not come from the same background. And it's like, you guys are strangers. Right. Communicate, you know, you can ask questions, which I spent a lot of time doing. I got into a lot of fun crowd work there. Um, and so, I mean, I had a familiarity. I wasn't like uncomfortable, but it's also like, I know I'm different mm-hmm. from, from, the, from the vast majority of people living there and um and just be open about it so i tell this joke about or i start to tell this joke about how i kept seeing all these white dudes trying to trying to pull this off and i and i told the the only thing it's going to make up for two four hundred years white people slaving black people is two hundred years of black people enslaving white people fair is fair dead quiet i got everybody's attention on me and i'm like uh so no one wants white slaves <laughs> and, and just people you know like shaking their heads like like and and somebody said no and i'm like why not somebody in the front this guy in the front he goes it's wrong man i'm like i know it's wrong i know it's wrong but i'm talking about vengeance i'm talking about i thought if i brought this subject here dorsey's like everybody was going to be cheering me on like yeah mean dave white slaves you got him like just something i'm like i need a better answer than that dorsey's why do you not want white slaves and this one lady answered this question and cut through the tension she goes because they can't cook for shit and that blew up the <laughs> everybody just erupted in laughter and i was like oh and i was laughing on stage it was a great moment like and that's there were a lot of moments like that there not all the time but when you had a moment like that the audience literally helped me write the ending to that joke and i would tell that story as a closer in many bits and and it's one of the bits that i i love where because my favorite bits are ones where I go into uncomfortable territory. I don't seek it out, but where I, I naturally find uncomfortable territory that I know people that it's tricky to navigate, but it ends in universal laughter. Right. And and those are my favorite jokes because you take them, you're taking people on a ride and, and it might even be a little tense, a little uncomfortable. But when you cut through that tension with a punchline that just gets everybody, it's a good feeling. Cause then it's like, all right, all right we were able to laugh at the truth of, of, you know, of this difficult subject. 
that that yeah it's it's tricky to talk about these things it's not comfortable yeah, so I, have and, a, uh, I have a question yeah. for you um sorry yeah. to interrupt i was just not at all. uh you know like uh do you have a lot of like uh people that you also sponsor or or, or help out you know or, I have a lot of friends that I help. I, the best way that I've found my recovery benefiting others has been simply being a friend because, and I, I always am, am willing to sponsor anybody. However, my track record of sponsorship, which does not reflect my recovery, um, is is somewhat humorous. And I'll tell you what my friend said when he asked me that. Uh, this is one of my normie friends. We were, we were chatting and he goes, uh, he goes, do you sponsor anybody? And I'm like, I have, um, I said, trouble is with sponsorship, like, you know, it's it, the way that you go find and sponsor or sponsor, you know, I offer it, you know, when I, when I feel comfortable in raising my hand to offer sponsorship. Um, but if, if people want me to be a sponsor, it's usually, it's been people who come up to me after I share, like I, I might speak at a meeting right. and, and the share gets them and then they come up and they, they ask me to be sponsored. And, and I, I always say yes. And what I've learned though, is, um, the patterns that tend to happen with sponsorship and, and, you know, what makes it attractive and all that kind of stuff. And everybody I've sponsored has, uh, would either would stop well in this order they would stop stop contacting me and i would even try to keep in touch with them and i wouldn't hear back right they've disappeared so i don't see them again right and then one after he disappeared i found out a year after he or like i found out a couple years after he disappeared that he died the previous year Uh, i I never knew and um, one of the one of his uh his old uh roommates uh, told me he goes yeah I just want to give you a heads up you you know Mike died last year from an overdose and all that and based on his pattern of behavior I wasn't surprised it was sad um, I, I and so I told my friend I'm like yeah I have sponsored people but they either they always like every one of them has has disappeared relapsed and one even died and my friend's response was Jesus man try not to sponsor anyone else <laughs> and you gotta laugh at that and. The, the thing about recovery, it's like, I've, I've, and I've sponsored, I've sponsored people too, that I also still know, um, that, that haven't continued to, to be my sponsees. But, um, the thing about sponsorship is it's, it's, it's up to you. The sponsor can't make you do anything. If you, some people want a more militant sponsor who's on their ass. Some of them like me, my sponsor, it was, uh, I needed I had a sponsor who was a little bit more intense, uh, not so much intense into working with me, but he he needed, he was an intense dude and he required intense sponsees. And, you know, cause he was, he was an ex meth head. And when I got, when I started, he had me call him for 30 days or text him or call him, I would call him and he would always be like, all right, so, so what's wrong today, man? Are you doing okay or whatever? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Like my recovery and my disease was was different in the sense that it wasn't this intense like it wasn't that intense early on my disease is very subtle and and gradual because again like i could go three weeks remember the three weeks it, it mine was more psychological than it was physical there was physical aspects to it but it had more to do with that that creeping back into my head so i knew that the recovery part of it 
that my disease was not gonna be, I wouldn't have a hard time. You know, it's just like anybody, it's good call it the pink cloud. Like you get the 30 day wonders, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel great with recovery. My life's gonna be so different and all that stuff. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And because a lot of times you see this in recovery, people get, you know, they get 30 days, they get 60 days, they get 90 days, and then they, and you stop seeing them coming to meetings. And the next thing you know, you see them six months later because they relapsed because they thought they could just go back to their normal life right. with, with the bare minimum of tools to navigate it and, and not ongoing recovery. And now they're back. And, and I learned more in my, especially in my 90 days, I learned more from hearing what people were saying coming back from a relapse because I had relapsed already. I've, I've done the relapse gamut before I got into recovery. So I know how all of those emotions feel. And the fact is, is once recovery started working, I'm like, I can't imagine how much more terrible it would feel to relapse with recovery on my mind. That would be a waste of fucking drugs and alcohol, all right? Because now, and they said, it's like a head full of recovery and a body full of drugs is a terrible combination. I can totally see that because I've experienced it already without recovery and then to have all this recovery and then to be like, you know what? To, to experience the level of fuck it where I think like, all right, man, yeah, you know what? No, this is all bullshit. Fuck it, I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna smoke, I'm gonna snort. Now, you know what? I feel like shooting now. I'm gonna go do that. It's it's a terrible feeling. And and it's one, the, the emotions that lead in that direction are now so completely counterintuitive to what I find benefit me in my life. One of the, and it's funny, your previous question was Nina G. Um, the thing about my relationship with Nina G was it developed more from, she said the thing, the window into learning me being someone that she she started to trust was when she learned that I would go visit my grandmother who was in a home who was when she still somewhat had her mental faculties uh, she was slowly slipping into dementia I would go read her poems and um, and spend some time with her and and my grandmother was an interesting woman she's from Britain uh, who married an American soldier uh, and then she divorced him. She married a Mexican in the 50s, uh, which was very odd to see a white woman and a Mexican at that time. I have a black and, or there's a black and white photo of those two uh, together and they didn't last long because he was a terrible alcoholic. Um, and then she married another dude that was my mom's stepdad and then he died in a, in a, in a car crash and then uh, and then she married another guy that was basically just her like kind of like just a friend that they married just to so that you know their relationship or whatever wasn't like intense hot love or whatever and um, that's who she spent the her life with until he died uh, and he died not long after she stopped she lost her vision and that was when she kind of started slipping into this this dementia part that was really hard on on everyone her and everyone around her she became like a real woe is me uh person and the funniest part about her was she would say some really funny fucked up shit being British while losing her sight and her mind that really indicated that like, you know, how kind of British people feel. <laughs> and and it's like, you know, everybody always wants to talk about, you know, white supremacy being obviously the Nazis and Germans. I'm like, nah, the real white supremacists were the British. <laughs> as far as, as far, it wasn't like so much white supremacist. She was more like, British people are just the best people on the planet. I'm like, Jesus, Grandma, what the fuck? Like, you know, and she she's just like letting out her frank mind in a lot of ways, you know, talking about a lot of her past. And, and it would crack me up. 
um but she she was you know again she's in dementia but these are like her candid thoughts of, of her mind it's not you know it's it, you know it's it's just it's a woman who's going to be leaving this earth soon let her let her you know blurt out whatever and i had a good time talking to her up until she she really slipped into dementia so nina thought that was that was really cool and like i was a human being doing that because there's a lot of these desperate personalities in comedy are very gross uh even people that you know you it's it's a it's a really weird thing and nina and i started a friendship that uh she was also dating her now husband at the time who was one of my favorite comics he's one of the smartest funniest guys around and now i know him through her uh which is really funny because you know it's like i know him as the husband as a husband and i almost feel like he's my husband too through her and i'm like well shit man he needs to fucking get his you know like act together <laughs> just, just like shit like that and i love that guy to pieces and um but it's funny because the the part that really she came even further into my life was um she saw my stick figure drawings for po uh, flyers i would do for my um for my comedy shows that came from when i played in a band i made flyers that were stick figures caricatures of people and she liked them and then she had this idea for a children's book that uh you know once upon an accommodation which i think you're familiar with it's it's her first book um, aimed at teaching kids and adults about learning accommodations and she loved the stick figure drawing so much she wanted me to, to illustrate the book and I was coming down from a coke binge in a real bad way very depressed and I got that email from her asking if I would want to do that and what she didn't know is my earliest dream was to be a cartoonist when I was just a kid all I wanted to be was a cartoonist doing panel cartoons and Sunday morning funnies and it was such a lame dream but i loved i wanted to do it i loved it i was a big fan of mad magazine and crack magazine and then i had a shitty art teacher that was very discouraging in seventh grade when i wasn't trying to be some like painter artist or whatever you know i wanted to be some deep drawing I'm like i wanted to be a cartoonist and this bitch was so dumb she did not know how to nurture a, a passion for that someone had that clearly was it's like wow for an art teacher you're terrible because art teachers, I would imagine, should have an open mind to to understand that like art is so encompassing. It's there's so many levels to it. It's not it's there is it is not a uh, it's it's not a cookie cutter. It's not like a sport where like we know one dimensional is it's, it's yeah, yeah. And, and she was she was just this lazy old woman who was bitter and angry, and she would give me terrible grades on my efforts to try and conform to whatever her mainstream standards were for art she had no appreciation of the fact that i was trying to be a cartoonist and was just trying to develop my skills in in these other areas so that i could be a better cartoonist yeah. and and just the way she made me feel i was like well screw this the funny thing about it though is that i secretly i really wanted to be a musician but i just figured i'd never learn um, and I ended up learning that stuff way more than I ever planned on. I love movies. Never thought I'd be able to like make or be in a movie or something. I do. I've done that short films and gotten to be in some in a feature or two. And and then, uh, you know, I let alone being a stand up comic, which is something I loved growing up and I loved as an adult. But I, I also never found it attractive because I knew that they were like the blues players of, of modern society where their lives are miserable. That's why they need to create, have this compulsion to create joy out of it. But it's a solid, it's a solo isolating venture. And, uh, and even more daunting when I got into it, but, um, I ended up doing all these other things. Meanwhile, the whole time 
I was stick figure drawing, like doodling. I would always be doodling. And I developed my doodles and had my own little way, especially when I got into psychedelics, I would draw, do all kinds of weird shit, draw twisted cartoons. And and, um, and when I did the stick figure angle, it was just something I got into because it was simple, it was easy, it was low maintenance. And, and I liked doing it. And I liked making them look pretty accurate to the person that was depicting. And she loved them. And I was like, yeah, I'll do this. I totally do this and she goes i'll pay you of course i'm like don't worry about that we'll figure that out i would just rather i, I would love to, to be a part of this and i felt really it really uplifted me and we worked on it for about a year and um and i i want it was something that i would sober up to put time into i wouldn't i might get a little high smoking some weed because i enjoyed drawing while i was high but um but i wouldn't be drinking or doing coke when i was trying to get this this thing done and so i felt like it was helping me kind of try to get my life right in a, in a way and um and i was focused on it and she she totally she loved what i was giving her and, and doing that and then we worked out a deal she said well i'll pay you 500 bucks a flat fee if you want or you can take a percentage of the books over time and here's what this is me the best decision i ever made i'm like if i just take 500 bucks that's just gonna go to drugs and alcohol right away <laughs> I think I would rather, and even though i needed the money i was like i'm not doing that i'll take the percentage because that's then a long-term investment who knows maybe the book will blow up i don't know exactly. and even still even though it's it's been an, an independent book venture i've definitely made probably because I've never, I haven't counted it all, but I'm sure I've made probably like at least three or four times more than than what she would have paid me. Yeah. Um, I know, I, I, I think I tracked it enough to know that I made more than $500, like, I don't know how many years ago. Um, and we still sell the book and it's still, you know, it's still people when they see it, they light up and all that. And then, um, and then when I got in recovery, that was something for her, I'm sure, just seeing a friend who was struggling and doing all that, she uh she when i got into 12-step recovery i think that was something that she really was was impressed with uh you know being my friend even through my 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 addiction times um just see i i can't only she could really give you that perspective i really couldn't assume what she saw all i know is i would see her more often we would we would she would book me more on she was running a show at the time i always would book her on whatever stuff i had but um and we would, we would, you know, we'd always be, you know, happy to see each other work together. Uh, you know, she'd let me crash at her place from time to time if I needed to for, for whatever reason. And, and again, it was this, this really strong platonic friendship of, of sorts, like not even like thinking about it. It was just, I met her mom and her mom was, is a hoot. I, I love her. I love her parents, her mom and her dad. Um, and, uh, and then, and she met mine as well. Um, and then, uh, but it really didn't, I, I would say like we, she was operating the, running the Comedians with Disabilities Act mm -hmm. with various assortment of comedians who unfortunately, just like any other comedians, have trouble kind of like sticking to the plan, like whatever they were doing. They're, they're comedians, doesn't matter if they have disabilities, or they're just like other comedians. They're very self-interested and Nina when when this guy michael o'connell introduced this this concept of this show and invited her to be a part of it she loved it right. and she felt like she, she felt it and when michael o'connell couldn't continue to run it she took the mantle of this of this brand and wanted to continue it because she felt it was important and something that needed 
needed to be done. And, you know, she felt that sense of purpose, that, that service, being of service and purpose in her art, uh, which I completely respected at the time. And, and then, yeah, we were working together more after I got into recovery and she, she, again, she just started seeing it helping my life. And, and, um, so we, we would do more shows. We, I mean, we just found ourselves probably on more shows together, um, and would work together on some stuff because she, it, she then, um, invited me to host her one woman show that she was, she was doing a one woman show for colleges. Um, but she wanted to do a run through to kind of get, get through it you know uh to practice it and she did it at her old venue at the uh the pinball museum in alameda and she wanted me to host it uh so i hosted i did a little bit of my set and but one of the thing one of the things she's always uh uh she's she's been vocal to me about what she loves about me is i'm not i i do not just stick to doing my stand-up when like I adapt to the to the when the, to whatever the 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 venue the show when I'm when she, the reason why she had me host the show is because she knew that I wasn't going to just go up there and do my jokes and introduce her it's because I'm going to set this up for what for the audience in, in a in a proper way mm-hmm. like I'm not just going to do my jokes I'm going to talk from the heart because of, about what what this is and she didn't she didn't micromanage me she didn't whatever she just said this i want you to to host it you know do do what material you feel do what you feel is appropriate she trusted me to do something that i know was an intimate uh uh expression for her mm-hmm. so uh so when i when i talked about it i i let i leave room to improvise the heart part that's from like you know just like public speaking i there's a difference like right now i'm speaking from the heart versus some scripted you know you know bs of my my act so i do a little of my act and i talk about you know a little of my recovery and how it led me you know whatever into kind of doing what i'm doing there but the thing that that opened up that that set her her mind off was i talked about the addict brain as i come to understand it and related it to what she's described in the dyslexic brain and that's when a light bulb went off and she was the one who looked it up under the Americans with Disabilities Act and found that addicts and alcoholics in 12-step recovery are covered under the ADA. And she was thrilled as punch because she had such a hard time finding consistent comics who were both good and and had the pre- have, were like reliable to be a part of the Comedians with Disabilities Act because they all moved away, their life kind of took them away from stuff and they all kind of, they just kind of went off in their own directions and, and one passed away, the one who started it. And so so she wanted to keep it going, but she didn't know how and she didn't have people that were reliable to keep, to keep this going. And so when she found out that I was covered under the ADA, she's like, I got a ringer. I got a ringer for this now. Like Dave, Dave like she's like, Dave, you, you you don't know how happy I am that you said what you said in the thing because I am going to exploit the hell out of your recovery in in the and like it was, and it's it's funny because it's like it's a hustle but it's an honest hustle it wasn't it wasn't done be, like she she knew how to pitch it to me because she knew I was serious about comedy but now what we have is a is a sense of purpose in in both doing what we love, but also finding the advocacy in it and knowing that there's a good market of good paid gigs to do that. And, and, and to do that in a way that both 
encompasses being of service, but also allows us to 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 get value, to get full market value out of our skills, so that we're not just you know it's it, you know it's 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 not just exploiting something to make money at it. No, it's 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 being able to feel like what we're doing is purposeful. What we're doing is trying to help inspire and give others the confidence. To, to to find their own path and see that these people are doing it and there's and it's more it's not just us it's invite it's inclusive and trying to get more people to do that and and it's it's been incredible um because yeah we started doing these shows. she was the one who took me into like the intersectionality of doing some of these disability shows and and i did them and they and they went well and it helped me Help me to to work on my act to be adapting to these various different environments. So I, I remember I did one act. She wasn't she she couldn't do this one gig, and they hired me for this. Uh, it's this one nonprofit out of San Jose that uh, they 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 are a service that helps uh, people with disabilities to to do to navigate real life. You know, uh, like find jobs, get housing just navigate that stuff there i forget um i want to say it's something expectations i think or, or greater expectations or something they're out of san jose i'm pretty sure they're still around and they hired me to do uh one of their their annual um events and i went there and so i'm i'm their their hired you know entertainment and and i i was doing like i think like 45 minutes or something and i uh so i go up there and I, I riff like for about 20, 25 minutes and do really well and all that. And then I'm like, I go into my club act. I start doing some jokes for my club act and I'm getting some groans and I'm getting, some, I'm like, oh, okay. So this isn't the right, I should have just talked to you. I should, why, why did I even bother going into these, into these jokes? These are, and I, and I, and I got laughs from like the awkwardness that it caused. But, um, and I pointed it out, I'm like, I'm learning something here today. Like we're all learning something, you know? And and again, it just taught me, you know, again, you, you learn these things through experience and stuff. And Nina has helped me navigate performing in colleges um, where we've done our, our shows. Some of them have been small shows, but they're more intimate. and we're, we're good with small shows. Some of them have been larger shows. And we've had turnouts that actually felt like, you know, like club audiences uh, for to, to younger audiences. And, and then having the Q&A afterwards, we get to have a whole other level of interactivity where we get to talk about uh you know disability recovery all of these things where comedy like how it all you know comes together and and it's and also just get another way to kind of be funny without trying to be funny um just talking about you know real life and and it's been it's been awesome um and and then again as that continued obviously we become closer in in working together um, and uh, the thing is, is what really, I would say what really has crystallized, I have a, I have a circle of friends that I work with, I, I choose to work with predominantly, you know, I've learned this from recovery. It's like, just like I have a support system in my recovery, I have a support system in my comedy world. Um, and part of it is because I know I don't drive and it's not like I always need rides. I can take public transportation and such. But if I'm going to roll someplace with a comic, I want to make sure I would want to do my best to have it be someone that I trust, that I, I enjoy spending time with, that I also believe in as a comedian, that I trust, I, I, I trust and respect, dare I say, love their, their work. 
And I'm very fortunate that that I have that circle of comics. Uh, of it's uh, and I'll name them. Uh, my friend Teddy Hull, he's also in recovery. Uh, my friend FC Sierra, who is someone I've known for a long time, very funny comic, who uh, who then is a uh, is transgender woman, uh, and I've I've known her through the time leading up into that, and have seen her evolution, which is incredible. I haven't worked with her as much lately, but. Um, but any chance I get to, it's because I try to pitch her. I work with her to try and get her to headline shows that I was headlining and she was featuring for me. And then she would keep burying me. So I'm like, yeah, now you get to headline these shows and then I'll feature for you. We'll do that. And, um, but yeah, her, my friend Ivy Cordova, who uh, is, a, is a hoot. Uh, she's, she's a normie, you know, she doesn't really drink, but you know, she'll smoke some weed and do all that kind of, but she knows me and we, we, we have a lot of fun together. Um, uh, and then, and, and pretty much, I guess at the top of that list is Nina G. Um, and Nina G being just somebody that really, I would say also because we came closer, cause I, 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 uh, I edit for her, uh, for her writing. Um, she wrote those two books that are interrupted and the Bay area stand up comedy history. And both of those books, she paid me, uh, uh, I, I don't I don't I'm not a licensed or uh, I was I was by no means a, a an official copy editor but um, she knew that I was good with grammar she knew that I was good with punctuation and she would pay me uh, a, a, a reasonable rate to edit her stuff and it would still get edited by other editors later but it just would take less time because I would be the first pass and um and and so yeah so i edited her books and i would help with structure and kind of because she has a pattern of with her dyslexia of kind of repeating herself or repeating phrases so i'm good with editing in that aspect and um yeah so i i was i was one of the editors on stutter interrupted and then i was also one of the editors on on her other on the other book and um so i've worked with her in that capacity she has me also edit for her uh dealing with school and stuff and that's a little more informal but like you know she always buys me lunch and dinner and, and stuff like that so i'm like she sends me stuff like here let me know how much it costs i'm like you bought me dinner it, it's good like we're even and um and then but the pandemic was where i think even it even got more closer working together because we were we were already doing a lot of the comedians with disabilities act with colleges and stuff before that and other events um but when the pandemic happened we you know again we a lot of us pulled together to find alternative ways of doing our stand-up and we worked together doing this zoom podcast uh where it was a zoom show with a podcast vibe called uh the show and tell comedian show and tell uh which became really cool and it was a it was a way to do it wasn't doing straight up stand-up on zoom it was we had comedians come on with we had our audience and they would tip us and they would share an object like show and tell and just talk about an object and what it means to them what it means to them and then we have questions and with comedians talking we're funny shit's gonna happen or even whether it's funny whether it's meaningful whether it's whatever like cool things are gonna come from it and we we had a lot of fun doing that and we we were able to help people have get paid you know work doing doing our show as we come to close um i want to say thank you and uh, thank you. um you know it's just been an amazing journey just hearing you and just um um exploring your world 
and you know honestly uh, as people go through their navigations in life you know I, I hope that uh, they get a they take away from the show something positive what they listen to you from your story and if they don't I hope you can laugh at it. I hope you can make fun of me trash me to your heart's content and get some joy out of some negativity from any of this any of my spewing of the last three hours uh, and, yeah. and um could you uh once more uh tell the of the world when uh when your next show day is and where where they can come see you at well, because um, I don't know when you'll have this up. I'm, I perform all over. You can follow me at mean underscore Dave on Instagram. I post my shows every week that I'm uh, doing that week. Um, and I perform primarily a lot in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, all the way from everywhere from San Francisco, Oakland, Santa Cruz, North Bay, Santa Rosa. Uh, and then we go out of town from time to time. Um, you know, I, can, I headline feature be part of showcases all that stuff i run regular shows my own shows uh every third monday i run a uh it's a comedy showcase of mostly newer or uh or you know newer talent and some some veterans at Vinny's bar and grill in concord at 7 30 uh it's every third monday um it's kind of it feels like an open mic but it's not it's a book showcase of a lot it's like 10 to 12 comics all together um so doing like shorter sets it's uh it's only a 90 minute show and it's a lot of fun uh, you can watch watch comics have fun watching them do well and and struggle it's it's fun to watch on all levels um and then every second and fourth monday i run a pre-booked mic again not an open mic but it's a pre-booked mic with two featured comics at Lily Max restaurant and that's in Sunnyvale. Um, it's uh, and that's at eight o'clock on second and fourth Mondays. There's a show there every Monday, but uh, I only run the second and fourth Mondays and my buddy Arturo Recoza, he runs the other ones, um, the first and third. And then uh, down the street from there is the best show that I run in a bar called Murphy's Law. Um, and that's every first, third, and if there's a fifth Thursday of the month, um, I run a show there that's at 8 30 that's a you that's my best uh comedy showcase it's uh it's good comics from uh we we have like a five person comic lineup five to six depending on if i have a guest set on there and uh and that has like uh me hosting two openers a feature and a headliner and it's usually like uh, it runs from 75 minutes to 90 minutes so we're usually done by 10 o'clock um and it's a good time we get a good audience there regularly the bar is really cool to us they love the show and we have a really good time there and then i run a show at a little more of a tricky spot every third sunday uh of the month at branham lounge there's a show there every sunday but i run the third sunday there and branham lounge is an awesome loungy bar that has terrible regular patrons but we get good audiences that come to the show and if we're what we hope every week is that their shitty patrons don't ruin the show while we run it from eight o'clock until like about 9 30 before their dj hits and it's a fun room when it's good and it can be a very tough room when the regulars are kind of screwing it up we were doing i was doing my show outside so that we wouldn't have to deal with any of the regulars uh for a while there and um which and the show went great and it was even like kind of more upbeat and then um uh the, the owner uh, was getting some complaints from the neighboring businesses and he was more concerned about underage people hanging out in the outdoor patio 
uh, that, that, you know, where they could still get in trouble if there's underage people in that patio. So, or if they're drinking. And um, so I, I, we had to, we have to do it indoors, but we've been lucky. Uh, it only really gets bad when football season starts. So, um, so I encourage people to go to the show, but also like, if there's a lot, of, if it gets, if it scares you, don't be afraid to leave. We won't worry. Uh, I understand. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll even be running that show for too much longer. I might hand it off to someone else because I just started, um, I just started hosting trivia at a at a place in Daly City. So if I stick with that, I'm probably gonna drop one of these. Uh, I might drop that show to someone else who's a little more, a little more wanting to like. I don't like I don't like having a show that I run where I'm like, oh god, I gotta run that show. I like looking forward to my shows. Um, and Branham's like 50-50. It's like it's a gamble and uh, even the gamble leads to some anxiety about it and I'm like eh, if I don't feel good about it I probably shouldn't be running it and um, yeah and that's again recovery thing I want to put my best foot forward but beyond that I perform all over the place just follow me on on Instagram you'll see the posts uh, every Monday or Tuesday you'll see a, a, a flyer for all my shows that week um, that you can come check out and uh, what's your, yeah. What's your, what's your handle on Instagram? Uh, at mean underscore Dave. If you just search for mean Dave, I'm at the top of the list. But the actual handle is at mean underscore Dave. Also, you can you can search for me or you can find me on Twitter uh, at mean Dave time. Um, I'm a little more ignored on Twitter, so it's nice to have more followers there. <laughs> Um, and I'm on Facebook, but Facebook's a little more of an exclusive club of you can, adding. You know. Try to add me on that if you if you have mutual friends, but uh, but yeah, there's there's a long. I have a lot of people in the queue that I don't know. It's usually comics that don't even. One of the worst things about comedians is they think they're networking by just adding comedians they've never met. Yeah, in person. yeah, it's kind of like the same like terrible any, any any community. <laughs> yeah, it's just terrible. I'm like I don't. I, I, you know, there's people where I'm like, I, they, you know, if they look familiar or if I've met them, I add them, but, um, but I don't like just, just approving everybody. And next thing you know, I've got, yeah, got they don't even say hi or, or anything. It's just like, okay, yeah. I'm going to add you just, just for the numbers. <laughs> yeah, for the numbers. I'm like, I don't need, you know, if anything, I, I and I, I relish anybody who, who, you know, yeah, if they get mad at me over a Facebook post and they unfriend me, I'm like, good, I need room. Like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> on this thing anyway, man. You know, go ahead. Oh God. On that note, um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is Tree from Phenomenal Disabilities, and I want to say thank you for having me, Dave, in the show. Woohoo! Woo <laughs> oh, yeah. And until next time, guests, come on back. <laughs>